I'm standing in the most beautiful church in the centre of Harrogate, Yorkshire. I've dealt with the rain, the sleet and the snow is on its way, apparently. I'm in the middle of podcast madness live setup with a coffee in hand, screwdriver in the other. And I'm just really excited to meet the amazing co-founder of Green and Black's Chocolate, serial entrepreneur, Joe Fairley. Um, a couple of hours time, we're going to welcome the crowds who are going to come in and shelter from the snow and sleet. And I just know that this is just going to be an incredible conversation. And hopefully I might get to eat a bit of chocolate at the same time. I'm Holly Tucker and welcome to Conversations of Inspiration. I'm the founder of Not On The High Street and Holly & Co. And I'm the UK ambassador of creative small businesses. I believe that having a business, doing what you love, is the key to a happy, fulfilled life. And my dream is to help everybody start theirs. So I've reached out to all my favourite small businesses, acclaimed entrepreneurs, and those who just simply inspire me, and ask them to share theirs. With thanks to our sponsor, NatWest, who have helped bring this free podcast to life. Here are my conversations of inspiration. Bow your head and let your eyelids close on down Where we're going, you won't need to bring your frown You will find that all the things that are... I'm here in Harrogate with an amazing live audience. Say hello to everybody listening. (laughs) (laughs) I'd love to welcome to the stage the co-founder of the multi-million pound household name Green and Black Chocolate, not only a hugely successful serial entrepreneur, but Joe was a pioneer of the fair trade movement, creating the first product in the UK to carry the fair trade mark. I know she also is a huge supporter of independence and small businesses, so we are lucky to have her here tonight. Please welcome to the stage the phenomenal Joe Fairley. Come and sit down. Wow. Okay. So this is a complete honour to finally meet you. We've not met before, but we have been chatting lots on all various forms of technology. We have. And we've decided that we love each other already. (laughs) And this is so great. So let's jump in. I'd love to start right from the beginning, if we may. Um, Did you have a happy childhood? did have a happy childhood but it was for we had a kind of single parent household because my father was a journalist and he traveled a huge amount he worked for ITN he traveled all over the world writing about science actually which was kind of the hot subject at the time and he presented the moon landings on ITV so my mum was left with four children under four and you know so it went on, basically. Um, I think eventually she realised how you got children and stopped. But, um, <laughs> but um, so I had a happy life at home, but I bloody hated school. Did I you? really did. I don't think after day one that I ever didn't drag my heels on the way to Bromley High School, basically. And was that from uh, right from the start? Right from the start. Yeah. Actually, first year, Miss Gibson was lovely. After that, I really didn't like it. 
God. But you also, so you, you took, um, you had a father that worked incredibly hard. Yeah. So did, you, you took that strong work ethic. Yeah. Um, and I, I was thinking about this the other day. It's one of the most important things that we can teach our children. When I speak to successful entrepreneurs, rather than having an entrepreneurial gene necessarily, it's actually being influenced um, from really hardworking parents. Yeah. It's been a golden thread that I've seen. Your grandfather was also highly entrepreneurial. I had two. Well, I had one very entrepreneurial grandpa who had lots of fashion businesses that got bombed during the war and he lost everything um, and then was never bitter about any of it. It was extraordinary. My other grandfather was a, an amazing engineer who designed the cable that took the phones under the Atlantic. So, I mean, I, we had some really you know, amazing people in my family. But the thing I learned from my dad, I mean, my dad always worked on a Sunday. And for years, I worked on Sunday because you can get so much done on Sunday. Yes. yes. <laughs> because the whole world is quiet. And I always used to think that you could get twice as much done on a Sunday as during a typical weekday. So I never mind working on a Sunday and then kind of bunking off for half a day in the week. Um, what were your passions as a child? Were there signs of caring for the environment back then? Um, I, I've always hated waste. I mean, I can remember smoothing out the wrappers from my sweets and because the silver paper or the coloured paper was so beautiful that I couldn't bear to throw it away. Um, and I've never liked throwing things away. I've always tried to make things last as long as I possibly could. I, I didn't... It, there was no such thing as an environmental movement when I was growing up, so no. it wasn't... I didn't have a label for yeah. it, but I just still hate waste. I hate, hate wasting money. I mean, I'm not mean, but I just hate seeing it trickle away where it's, you know, wasted. Yeah. Um, and I hate... I hate throwing things away. I'd rather have them repaired. And even as a kind of teenager, I was like that. I didn't buy millions of clothes. I had things that I just loved and wore to death. So in that way, yes. It was there. It was it there. It was there. I ask a lot about passions. As my mission, is, as, as, as we've said, is to help everyone build a business, build their lives doing what they love. However, sometimes I speak to people who aren't sure what, um, what to start a business from. They're unsure in their passions. But a great tip is really to look back at your childhood, what your passions were like growing up. And they often do come through. However obscure, as you said, there wasn't a movement necessarily in, but you hated waste. Um, I, read... I did also love chocolate. <laughs> So I think the signs were they, there. The signs were absolutely <laughs> there. I, I read that you did creative visualisation as a child too. Can you tell us well, about this? Well, as a teenager, this? and actually, spoiler alert, this is going to turn up in my letter at the end as well. But um, I wasn't allowed to stick pages from magazines up on the walls of my bedroom because this is pre-Blutac. Amazingly, there was life before Blutac. Um, <laughs> and... Um, so I papered the inside of my bedroom wardrobe with pictures that I had torn out of Vogue. They were images of a life that I wanted. They mostly weren't clothes, actually, um, but they were just pictures of people, interesting people and interesting places, and I stuck them on the inside of my wardrobe so that when I opened the door, they were there every time I got dressed, and I looked at them and I dreamed of an escape from... Bromley, basically. 
um, which was, you know, we had a lovely house, and it was a, but it was a suburb, and it was, I just found it deathly dull. And anyway, one day, not very long ago, I kind of had an epiphany, and I, I remembered those pictures on the inside of my wardrobe, and I realized that I had met so many of those people that I'd stuck their pictures up on my, my, the, the inside oh my of my bedroom wall. People like Carly Simon, who I interviewed. So I'm a great believer in creative visualization and vision boards, even though I didn't have any idea that's what I was doing. Mm. But I do think that there is something in envisioning a future for yourself. And it somehow removes the barrier that we sometimes put up mm -hmm. that prevent us following our dream. Just that last bit. And I see lots of people who sort of self-sabotage, actually, at the last minute. They get an opportunity and they can't quite do mm. it because the risk is too great or something. But, and I think somehow, on some level, looking at an image of how you want something to be can get you over that. Mm. And it is an amazing tool that almost if you believe, it will happen. Um, and so it's a fantastic. You didn't know you were doing it. I didn't know but I was you doing just it. thought you were tearing out nice pictures in, in vogue. After leaving school, you went on to secretarial college, proving your teachers wrong, where you learnt a lot of your business skills. Can you tell us about this time and what led you then into the magazine world? Well, one of the things that, you know, you learn how to do shorthand and typing, both of which were, became invaluable skills when I became a journalist, which, again, was something I never planned to do. But so I got so fast with typing and so able to touch type that when I put words on paper, I don't know where they come from. I, I, they literally come out of the end of my fingers because it's not a conscious process. And I think that, that touch typing should be learnt by everybody because that, that means the ideas can kind of flow out of yes. your fingers. But I did it, you know, you did a little bit of French, you did a little bit of law, um, a little bit of business studies, a little bit of bookkeeping, etc. Just enough to kind of give me a grounding in all of those subjects. And so... And what I loved about Secretarial College was that people told me I was good at something for the first time in my life. And I was like a little flower being watered. I just kind of blossomed. And I, I you know, was kind of top of my class when I left, which, trust me, had never happened before. <laughs> <laughs> so you, you, you found yourself almost in that. I did. did you? But, you know, the really weird thing is that I, I became a secretary because I thought I would be, a, it would be, I'd be able to go and work for some dynamic businessman, you know, I never imagined that I would be that business person. And I think sometimes it's easy to forget how far we've come. Yes. How did, it, how did you move from there into publishing then? I had an amazing job working for um, a knitwear company. Very glamorous. We had incredibly glamorous customers. I had two amazing um, dynamic bosses who had the hottest knitwear brand at the time. It's called Outlander. And I was the PA... Um, but it was a very glamorous job, and every night we were in nightclubs, and, you know, it was, it was very cool. As a 19-year-old, it was really yes. cool. And then a young Jane Proctor, who went on to become editor of Tatler, came into my office and left a copy of Campaign, the Advertising Industry Bible, on my desk. And in the back, it said a magazine was starting called Woman's World, and they wanted everything from T-boy to editor. And I applied to be a secretary in the fashion department because I thought, well, I know fashion, I work in fashion, interesting clothes. And my boss was an, one of those amazing talent spottery people. 
And he put me in the features department. And he saw something in me that I didn't know was there. And then I had this um, incredible features editor who just got me writing and made me feel like it was a normal thing to do and Mm. gave me things to write and then gave me bigger things to write. And then before I knew it, I was interviewing movie stars like Betty Davis. My goodness. I know. I know. My goodness. She was older than God at the time. (laughs) (laughs) I also started out in uh, publishing, working at Brides magazine. And it was such an incredible era to sort of learn your trade, especially um, learning off other women. Um, You really had to be tough, though, to survive. And you thrived. You became the youngest ever editor of a magazine in the UK at 23. What an achievement. And I can imagine the imposter syndrome oh might have been quite high oh. <laughs> um, and prevalent. Tell me about that. Oh, so, I mean, I mean, so you went from features as sort of... Well, you, I had this incredible boss, as I say, who talent spotted me at 19. And then four years later, by, the, by which time I was the senior feature writer, calls me into his office one afternoon and says, um, I need a new editor for Look Now, which was a younger sister title aimed at nice teenage girls, basically. And, and so I said, well, you know, Terry, yeah, what can I do to help? And he said, um, well, you know, I'm, I, what sort of person are you looking for? And I, he reeled off his list of attributes. And at the end of it, I said, as a joke, well, what you really want is someone like me. And he said, yes, I'd like you to start in the morning. <laughs> he'd, he'd done this huge kind of elephant trap for me, basically. <laughs> and I went, oh, my God. And so literally next day, I found myself in the editor's chair. Gosh. And it was a great time for magazines. It was, it was, you know, I went all over the world on fashion shoots. And, you know, you thought nothing of going to New York for the weekend to see a band and, and so on. Um, but the first month, I was completely terrified that I was going to be fired. Then at the end of the first month, I got, I realised it was a mechanical process that repeated itself month after month after month, and I knew how to do it. And then I just w- was able creatively to fly. And I, Almost I, once you'd got the sort of trade under your belt. Yeah, once yeah. I knew the technical side yes. of editing a magazine, because there are certain things you need to know. Um, and then I got a, a headhunted to do another fashion magazine called Honey, which was much more... Mm. I mean, it was a famous fashion magazine. And I had three of the most miserable years of my life, because in that second job, in that second editorial role, I'd gone... F- because of the way the organisation was. Um, my first boss, and I totally believe this, he left, gave us complete creative freedom. And he said that if you create a great product, sales will yes. flow from there. Yes. We were never bothered about budgets or, you know, as long as we didn't go too crazy, as long as my expenses weren't too over the top. I <laughs> um, uh, got to second job. And instead of being the most senior creative... I was the most junior rung of management. Mm. And I, ev- everything was about meetings. Everything was about budgets. Everything was about the meeting, having a meeting to discuss the meeting you were going to have. And I was so miserable. We all know that, don't we? Yeah. I mean, I, we've, we've all had those jobs, yeah. haven't we? It's, 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 it's incredible, isn't it, that it's, it still goes on. I know. I'm, I'm very anti-meetings, actually. Meetings for the sake of meetings. 
It's, 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 and I like to keep them really short. Stand up, keep them short. Yeah. And you went on to have this incredible career in journalism, and you still do, continue to work as a journalist today. <laughs> but it was in 1991 when your life suddenly changed for you, that infamous moment when you first tasted those two squares of chocolate. Would you do us all the great honour of telling us that story behind starting Green and Blacks? So by then, I was living with... Uh, the man who's now my husband, um, Craig Sams, who I worship and adore. Um, And we've been together since about 1988. And he was a natural foods pioneer. You know, if you think I'm a pioneer, he was selling brown rice and tamari and aduki beans and patchouli oil back in the 60s. And, and really was a founding father of the, of the uh, natural food movement, really? an old Gosh. hippie who'd been to business school, basically. And I found two squares of dark chocolate sitting on his desk one day, I don't know, under a bank statement or something. And obviously, you find chocolate on your boyfriend's desk, what are you going to do? And I ate it, and I had this incredible epiphany, and I said, oh my God, what is this? It's the most delicious chocolate I've ever eaten. And Craig said, well, it's a sample of the world's first organic chocolate. And in fact, what, how it got there was the natural food world was tiny in those days. We knew everybody all over the world. We all, would all meet at trade shows, and it was very mutually supportive. And somebody had come to him with cocoa bean, uh, with them peanuts for his whole earth peanut butter, because that was his company. I did, of course, marry him for his peanut butter. <laughs> um, <laughs> So he'd been offered these peanuts, but they'd failed a quality control test. And the guy said, well, I've got cocoa beans as well. And Craig said, well, I can't do anything with cocoa beans. We need to get a sample made. But the problem was it had, of course, chocolate had sugar in. Mm -hmm. Um, So his whole founding philosophy had been no added sugar. And and I just kept on at him. I just kept saying, what's happening with that chocolate? You need to do something with that chocolate. And eventually he turned around to me and said, look, if you're so interested, you do it. And I was like, oh my God, I can't do this. This is, I've never, I, I write about other people doing interesting things. I don't, I've never planned to do anything interesting myself. But I just remembered this postcard that I'd bought in Carnaby Street when I was 15 of a, a man on a diving board. And it said, if you, if you don't do it, you'll never know what would have happened if you had done it. And, you know, I leapt off, basically. I jumped off the diving board. And I had to raid. Every, almost every penny of my savings, which was £20,034 from selling my flat before I moved in with Craig. And um, I literally risked absolutely everything because I knew that that was such a special product. We're proud to partner with NatWest. They support small businesses in so many ways. Just one of these ways is through Backer Business. This programme will match fund up to a million pounds a year, creating hundreds of successful applicants when they crowdfund through Backer Business. Listen to the end of this podcast to find out more. With a continued commitment to small businesses, NatWest, in a world first, give away the rest of this ad break space to small businesses and independents. They truly believe in the power of small and want to give you the opportunity to showcase your business to hundreds and thousands of listeners. 
So without further ado, let me hand over to this week's NatWest Independent Ad Break winner, which was recorded live during our podcast in Harrogate. The spirits industry needs a shake-up. For too long, it has been dominated by industrially produced brands. My name is Chris, and I've co-founded Cooper King Distillery to bring to the table sustainable spirits underpinned by craftsmanship, honesty, and adventure. Inspired by travels to Tasmania, my partner Abby and I returned to Yorkshire to continue the adventure, self-building and crowdfunding a bold new distillery. Now we produce premium spirits using the country's finest ingredients with a clear conscience. Our own honey goes in the gin, local barley in the whiskey, and the entire distillery is powered by 100% green energy. We also plant one square meter of Yorkshire woodland for every single bottle of gin we sell. Now our focus on flavor and sustainability has led to Michelin-style collaborations, uh, national press coverage in The Guardian, Eye and Financial Times, and retail stockists such as Ocado, Booths and Harvey Nichols. My ask today is simply that you come over to my stall at the end, um, have a chat and try some gin. Thank you. If you'd like to take NatWest up on their generosity and be listened to by thousands of people, take that leap of faith and send in your small business advert to independentadbreaks at holly.co. We're looking for the wonderful stories that only small businesses have and have created more information on exactly what we're looking for on our website, holly.co. I actually remember buying your chocolate back in the early days and it was very fashionable especially for dinner parties <laughs> and on the chocolate wrapper it would tell you the story the story of how it was made the producers that grew it the families that it would affect how your money would change lives yeah. and this was nearly 30 years ago it was so ahead of its time I always encourage small businesses to tell their story yeah. emotionally connect but it's only now just almost coming into fashion isn't it to vote with your money so you were truly a pioneer we now have the b corp movement which i speak a lot about mm. at holly and co um where you can officially certify that you use your business as a force of good would you say it's important to do this as i can tell this is such a strong passion of yours and your husband's what advice would you give to us um to help other people share what they're doing that's right for the world I think where it works well is if you can infuse your values into what you do, whatever those values are, whether, whether it's kindness, whether it's you know, caring for people in the developing world, whether it is caring for the environment or whatever. I think the thing is about the storytelling is it's got to be authentic. So you can kind of... We've all got bullshit radars where we can tell where people are just kind of doing it because they want to be seen to be doing it, but they don't necessarily believe in it. Um, so as long as you've got as long as you're aligned with your own values not kind of pretending to be mm -hmm. something that you're not I think it works really well and with the storytelling again it's got to be it's got to be an authentic story Yes, you know. yes. And do you think that was your journalism coming through? It was my journalism. Yeah. It was my journalism. So you were, you were combining... I saw a blank a piece of paper one day when I was doing a 
chocolate tasting. And, you know, blank piece of paper for a journalist is, is, is like, you know, catnip. <laughs> Had to fill it. <laughs> and so you, you wanted to tell that story instantly. And, and in terms of that, that movement, did you have an inkling that this was going to be something? Yeah, but I think we all thought it was going to happen way faster than it actually did. Yes. I genuinely... Craig and I talk about this. Genuinely, we really only feel that the message has started to get through in the last 18 months. And, of course, it's much more of an emergency now. Yes. You know, um, notwithstanding the President of the United States believing that there is no such thing as climate change. Um, mm-hmm. but, so it's much more of an emergency, but it is finally happening. And it's everywhere. And big business wants to change as much as small business wants to show their values through what they're doing. And you had a pretty prolific mentor, I read, someone who pioneered this business movement as well, Force for Good. Could you tell me about her, as she is a complete heroine of mine? The darling Anita Rodic, who, um, of course, before I met Anita, I was completely terrified of her. Yeah, I can um, imagine she I was I thought a bit she scary. was about six foot tall, and um, <laughs> actually she's smaller than me. Um, And I was being sent by the Sunday Express magazine to uh, Mexico to write about her aloe project with Anita. I was going to trail Anita on this this, uh, expedition. And we met at Gatwick. And she honestly lost her passport four times between checking in (laughs) and getting on the plane. And she she had this kind of crazy hair and crazy clothes. And it was like a tumbleweed rolling through Gatwick, basically. And, of course, by the time we got on the plane, I was not scared of her anymore. And, in fact, we'd become firm friends. And we then literally talked 19 to the dozen for the next 10 hours or something but I think that was before I started Green and Blacks and um, I was I was just a journalist in fact we we went to Romania again together I wrote about her sponsorship of the Romanian orphanages and it is literally was literally a life-changing moment it was it was utterly searing the whole experience Um, and I came home and sold the little bits of jewelry that I had and and sent the money to Romania um, and anyway so we, we became friends and then when I started Green and Blacks of course it was so close to her heart it was all the values that she'd embraced with the body shop and so she was amazingly supportive and she was the very best kind of mentor because what she did was open doors for me so she would introduce me to people that she felt could be supportive as well as her. Um, she signed me up for something called Social Venture Network, which was a, an, a networking organisation for social enterprises. And it was, I mean, it was people like Ben and Jerry themselves, oh and goodness. Anita and Gordon and um, Gary Hirschberg of Stonyfield Farm Organic Yogurt, etc. And we would get together in these crazy places like Zurich and up the mountains initially and in Boston and just kind of be like a support group you know yes talk because the big wide world thought we were mad they they really thought we were still bonkers at that point and it was incredibly important to have that um mutual support um she taught me about taking your sense of humor to work which I think is crucial um she taught me about um just not being afraid to say exactly what you think. I mean, you can never stop Anita saying anything. 
But what she showed me was that to be an effective mentor, you've really... It's all very well somebody coming up to you and approaching you to mentor them, or even talent-spotting someone yourself. But where it works really well is if your experience can directly relate yes, to what they're going to agree. do. If, yeah. some, if a banker comes up to me and says, will you mentor me? I can have a coffee with her once a month and pat yes. her on the hand and say it's going to be okay, but I can't really help. Yes. Whereas if somebody who's in the food business or um, the beauty business, which I've gone on to work in, um, or has an environmental business, I, I can... I can help because my direct experience relates to them. Yeah. So she was amazing. And I, I, the great tragedy is that she just got a huge amount of money from selling her company to L'Oreal. And I would have loved to see how mischievous she was going to be with where she spent it. Because she was, you know, not going to take it with her, basically. She was going to make sure it went into great projects and charities and so on. So it was tragic. What a woman. Going back to those early days of building Green and Black, what were your early challenges that you faced? I mean, apart from not knowing much... We've only got tonight, Holly. (laughs) (laughs) Not knowing much about chocolates, you know, but you started... Knowing what I liked. You you knew what you liked. Um, Well, Craig... Craig, The great strength was that Craig took care of the logistics side of it. He took care of strategy. He took care of finance. So... I do believe that in business, it's incredibly helpful if there are two of you, but not if you're good at the same bits. That's a mm-hmm. disaster. You need two people who've got complementary skills who you can just leave that other person to get on with their bits. So I, I did the PR, the marketing, the product development, the brand, the, brand, the, 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 the high-level sales, yep. so going to see supermarkets, etc. And he did all the rest. Um, so he had other challenges than me, but the big all-consuming challenge always was cash flow. Cash flow, cash flow, cash flow. Anyone, anyone know cash anyone flow issues? Yes, yes. Um, or are we all fine here? <laughs> <laughs> it is. It's, it's the, the, it's the biggest, one, isn't yeah. it? Yes. And we, it's actually harder when you're growing really fast. I'm sure you know this. I do. From not on the high street. I do. Where everyone thinks, oh my God, it's amazing. You grown 500% this year and you must be rolling in the money you must be rolling in it no actually because you've had to put everything (laughs) including the dog's piggy bank into into the business yes um in order to to keep it afloat so you know it'd be wonderful if businesses kind of grew at 10% a year but when they're going like that it's terrifying and there were a lot of sleepless nights a lot of sleepless nights and how, did it affect your relationship with your husband? No, because I set very clear boundaries about that. <laughs> um, anybody who works, anybody out there work with their husband? Okay. So, quite a few. Quite, quite a, few. a few. Well, I think it's, you know, if you can, it's a fantastic thing to do. But I realised after the first month that if we weren't careful, we, we'd only just got married. Yes. I mean, we actually got married in November and launched... The same in, year, The same it? year, yes. yes. How I Pretty managed big the year. launch of a chocolate brand and planning a wedding at the same time. <laughs> One of those things I look back, I go, I don't know how I did it. Um, so, after about a month, I realised that if I wasn't careful, all we were going to have was a business because it was just seeping into every minute of our lives. And so I set some really clear boundaries. And basically, we would stop work. 
We would go for a walk for an hour every night through Notting Hill, up and down, up and down the hills, download our day, talk about all the bits that we had done during the day. If Craig had an idea, he had a little recording thing in his pocket. Uh, if we had an idea, and he'd record that, and now it would be an iPhone. Um, we would stop and um, lick the window of Kath Kidston's shop, or rather I would, <laughs> first shop. Um, and we'd go home, and then we weren't allowed to talk about it again until next day. Right. And when we went on holiday, we weren't allowed to talk about it. And I would put my fingers in my ears like a small child and go, I'm not listening, I'm not listening, I'm not listening. <laughs> because um, I wanted to compartmentalise it rather than have it be, become our relationship, as it were. And maybe that's why we're still happily married 29 years later. What good advice. What was the chocolate market like back then? And was it true that you were told that British people would Won't never eat, eat dark, dark chocolate? Chocolate by many a supermarket buyer. Yes. Um, this, How did you persuade them? Well, because we got our first break. I mean, I, I think you do, to a certain extent, make your own luck. But I don't believe that... I think you get the occasional lucky break and then you have to capitalise on it. You know, when people say to me, mm-hmm. you're so lucky, I go, no. I worked really, really hard. Really <laughs> fucking hard. Really hard. So I, I, It's amazing, isn't it? It's amazing. People, it, it people go, you're so lucky. Okay, so our <laughs> apparent stroke of luck was that after about six weeks, I got a call from Sainsbury's. So I had PR'd the chocolate. I got it out to everybody I could think of. Magazine editors, newspaper editors, chefs, restaurateurs, anyone famous I'd ever met whose address I could track down. I got it out there. And after about six weeks, I got a phone call from um, Sainsbury's. And this guy said, we would like you to submit the chocolate for the next range review. So I went home and I said to Craig, hey, Sainsbury's rang today. And they said, could we submit the chocolate for the next range review? And he just looked at me and went, no, it just doesn't happen like that. You know, you have to go knocking on their door for years. Many years later, we discovered that... So basically, what he said was, one of our directors has had the chocolate at, okay. the, at a dinner party, and, and, you know, we'd like to look at it. And I discovered years later, it was actually Lady Sainsbury who'd had the chocolate at a dinner party. Obviously, it you know... It paid off. It paid off. So I think, I think it was because I'd sent it to Lady Annabel Goldsmith... And Lady Annabel Goldsmith got it out after supper, and Lady Sainsbury was sitting there, and um, said, "Wow, and, I love and this wow. chocolate!" And saying, "This is really good. We should have this in Sainsbury's." So after that, because back in '91, Sainsbury's was the number one supermarket in the UK. Everybody looked to Sainsbury's to see what was successful for them. And so that was how we got it into other supermarkets, even though they weren't quite convinced by it, even though they thought the the British would never eat chocolate that dark. Because Sainsbury's had it, we were pushing it open doors. So the highest percentage chocolate that you could get on the market was 55%. We were 70%. um, Because we felt that if we wanted to eat dark chocolate, lots of other people felt the same Mm -hmm. way. Mm. And I got it out to Delia Smith and, you know, Jamie Oliver in time and Hugh Fernley Whittingstall and the Groucho Club and all of that. And they all recognised what I'd recognised when I put it in my mouth, which is this great chocolate. And they also realised it was great to cook with. And pretty soon, 70% dark chocolate became 
the benchmark of quality in every chocolate recipe that you picked up. And we were the only 70% chocolate on the market at the time. Isn't that amazing? It reminds me, actually, of the phenomenal Sahar Hashimi, who, yes. I don't know if you've all heard the podcast, who I've had the pleasure of speaking to. And she bought coffee, um, you know, shops into the UK seven years before Starbucks. Yeah. And she was told we were a nation of tea drinkers and we would never drink coffee. And so it just shows you, you've just got to keep on going, keep believing, keep pushing forward. Tell me how, so you said cash flow, no one was eating dark chocolate, Long days, aren't they, when you're starting a business? I I mean, mean, how did you how did you cope in those that beginning year? Because it is hard to keep going, isn't it, when you are sort of your own machine, your own Duracell battery. Yes, but I have always um, known, and I knew this from editing magazines, that I had to look after myself, and I really tried to tell people that if this you are your number one priority because everybody depends on you. And so people should never feel guilty about Mm -hmm. going to the gym, going for long walks, taking vitamins, getting out at lunchtime, having a massage, whatever kind of yoga, in my case, Pilates, whatever keeps you upright. I mean, it sounds like I don't do anything but... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that is not true. But I, I, I made sure I was never yes. running on empty, even though I was working incredibly hard. Um, but it was sometimes 18-hour days because mm-hmm. uh, I was still having to work as a journalist. So I'd have these two phones on my desk, and I'd be on the phone to the editor of You magazine who'd be commissioning me to, you know, I don't know, write about elephant polo or something. And I'd have to say, <laughs> hello, hang on, D. Hello, green and blacks. And, and literally, that was how it was for nine years. I was, I was answering the phone. Because I actually love answering the phone. I run, in my most recent business, the Perfume Society, I ran the customer service line for the first 18 months because I wanted to hear what people were saying about my business. It's, it's a great tip, isn't it? I remember um, Johnny Bowden saying that for the first few years of Bowden, he was the man that you spoke to when you were returning a dress or something. <laughs> and it was actually him and he would put on yeah. different voices, to, you know, for the different <laughs> sort of things. You, so you kept that job whilst you were, it was like, a, you know, what we call side hustle. Don't like that term necessarily, but you were very much, you were looking at that transition, keeping the security of that job yep. and freelancing whilst building a company. And I'm a great believer in that. Are you? I'm a great believer in not um, too soon giving up the day job. Okay. Because where I see a lot of people run into the sand with businesses is that, um, okay, so there's a basic fundamental rule of business, which is to get where you want to get, it's going to cost you twice as much money and take twice as long. And I always think it's, it's the analogy of a car that goes from naught to 60 All the acceleration is towards the end. But at the beginning, you're just like that. You've got no brand awareness. I mean, Green and Blacks was an exception. But generally, um, it takes ages to reach the point you want to be at. So if you've given up your day job and you've done your budget and you've run out of money and you can't even afford a Starbucks, that's when you give up. But if you've just kept, you know... You yes. have to work doubly hard. Yes. But you've got security of knowing that your mortgage is going to be paid, you're going to be able to clothe your kids and feed your family or whatever. 
it's a good test. If it's worth working that hard for, it's probably worth doing. We've teamed up with our friends at Three and all year we'll be working together to make dreams come true. Share your dreams on social using hashtag Holly and Co Dreamer and who knows what will come true. With a Three Means business plan, I love that you can get up to £500 worth of benefits from their partners to help give your business a lift in those early days. Now over to a short story about those that dreamed big and flew. With a $5 mail order course in ice cream making from Penn State and a $12,000 investment, Ben Cohen and Jerry Greenfield opened their first ice cream shop in a renovated gas station in Burlington, Vermont. From the start, they were focused on intensely flavoured and creative ice creams because, as Cohen told the New York Times, I've never had a very good sense of smell. And if you don't have that, you don't have a good sense of taste. The game was for Jerry to make a flavour I could taste with my eyes closed. Ben and Jerry dreamt of always supporting their teams and for years they kept the top salary at their company no more than five times larger than the lowest paid worker. In 2000, they sold their company to Unilever for $326 Not bad for what started with a $5 course. Don't forget to share your own business dream using hashtag Holly and Co Dreamer. To discover more about business plans, search Three Means Business. Now back to Conversations of Inspiration. Tell me about PR, because we now have, obviously, social media, we have the internet, we have all these wonderful things. You talk about how you got your products out there. Would you say today it is, I mean, a Not Nice Street was built from PR. You know, we used to yeah. send out personalised stockings to all of the journalists, and we used to find out the names of their children and then personalise <laughs> the products in the stockings for their kids. We, I was only saying to the team, we used to write every single letter and sign every single letter. Yeah. Even if it was a you know four hundred or five hundred letters, would you say that that still is the case today? One thousand percent, right? And are Absolutely. we doing it well? Do you think small no? Businesses- most most people are putting all of their effort into. Um, they believe that Instagram, for example, is going to build their business. In some cases, it does, but there's so much noise, and and I still believe that information that is received. For this generation, still, through the printed page, imprints itself on your brain in a way that digital probably still doesn't. And if you see an endorsement from a journalist who is, you know, not hashtag ad um, yes. in a magazine, I think it still carries more weight. And, and so if I was launching, you know, with the Perfume Society, we got product out into people's hands. We got our discovery boxes into people's hands. So we wrote press releases. I still sign um, cards and send them to journalists to thank them or to send them something. And I, I think it's much more powerful. I, I mean, I think you have to do both. You can't not do Instagram, um, not have a Facebook page. But good, effective print PR definitely translates to sales and also 
for example, if you're if you're trying to sell to a um, to a shop, a bigger shop, um, if you're trying to sell to a supermarket, they really like to see print coverage. Okay, so it means it's a actually lot if you're in there, you're being endorsed by the journalists. It actually matters to other people, it not just to other people, to too. your sales, yes. because you don't necessarily have to see the dial moving. But another thing that I do feel is that it just builds this brand awareness at the back of your mind. You feel that it's just gone up a level. You yep. know, it's it's been recommended by journalists, been written about. Yep. Oh, and then two months later, you see it written you see again, it again, and, and, then, and you think, and then oh, the third well, time some... you think, oh, I'm definitely going to go buy yes, that. Yes, yes, and. What I would say is for anybody, I mean, all of you, uh, many of you will be making stuff, I imagine. Um, there is huge power in generosity, giving stuff away like you did with the, mm-hmm. um, with the stockings, stockings etc. Just sending a kind of dry black and white press release to a journalist's desk is not going to get you noticed. But if it's got a cuddly toy attached or a bar of chocolate or something that you make... They've got to register it because they've got to physically deal with it. Mm-hmm. And, and that's how you get it noticed, is mm. actual physical product. And I would far rather spend money on giving product away. I mean, it became the pillar of what Green and Blacks did from the very yes. beginning. We gave away, we've given away hundreds of tons of chocolate over the years. Yes. Um, because we believe that as people put that square of chocolate in their mouth, they would have that same epiphany that I had. Um, so... You know, if you've got a great product, give it away. And conversely, in the early stages of a business, don't spend money on advertising because your advertising is not going to register on anybody's retina until you've established your brand and started to get some recognition. Then you kind of back that up. But at the beginning, I mean, I learned this the hard way when I opened um, our bakery in Hastings. Um... And, you know, we, we were persuaded to advertise in the local paper and do stuff. Well, it didn't do anything at all. Ditto, I have a well-being centre. Advertising in the local paper didn't do anything. And everyone, everyone wants your dollar. You know, they really do. I was that salesperson once (laughs) in in the magazine things. I remember persuading people. But what you're saying is, you know, your brand needs to be known to be recognised in advertising. So let's fast forward to 2005. You sold the business to Cadbury. Can you tell us about that time in your life? What it felt like, what it felt like to hand over your legacy? So actually, the sale of Green and Blacks happened in a couple of stages. So we took private equity investment after nine years. And that was, you know, at that point, we knew that to get the business to the next level, we were at about two and a half million pounds a year. We were going to double to five million in the next year. And it would have crucified us, I think. So we took investment from um, a group of investors who not only gave us some money and some shares, which was nice, thank you, um, after all those sleepless nights, but they brought amazing talent into the business, and that was so important because we'd actually reached the, the kind of... We were as stretched mm-hmm. as we mm-hmm. could be. Mm-hmm. Um, so they had a, a new financial director. They had a new um, MD. They had a new marketing director uh, who... Uh, the second, the second marketing director was a huge hit, and he'd come from Burger not King. Not the first not, one. <laughs> best not go there. Um, the he'd come from Burger King, and at the time we were completely vegetarian. So having a 
marketing director from Burger King was a bit upsetting. Um, but he was amazing, Mark Palmer. And he just helped take the business to the next level. How did you feel about these people coming into your business? Well, they weren't just coming into my business, Holly. They were coming into my house. Because basically, um, rather like us, they didn't believe in spending money on expensive offices. So we'd been running the business (laughs) from our house. I rented the little flat next door. Literally, it was the other side of our bedroom wall. And I'd go there every day like I was going to work. Craig used to say, why don't you just knock through? And I'm like, because I don't want to think my office is on the other side of that door, thank you. Um, so they moved into our house, and my, uh, the MD was in my stepson's bedroom. Um, we basically moved into a bedsit on the top floor because um, the living room was the boardroom. <laughs> and if I wanted to use the kitchen table, I had to put it on a chart. <laughs> So but it was quite fun. Yeah, and you, I mean, you, you made still me get cost- dressed in the morning. I tell you, because you didn't <laughs> want to run into them on the stairs. And um, what happened there, though? So you, you got that investment in, yes, and then-, then then we knew it was going to be sold on. And we would have no control. We no longer had controlling shares. And actually, when you sell your business, you very rarely sell a non-controlling share because if that person is coming into your business, they actually want to be able to take pivotal decisions and not have you scream and shout about it. So we took a majority, uh, we sold the majority of the business, we knew it was going to be sold on, and it was sold to Cadbury's. You know, they like to think they invented corporate social responsibility, and they kind of did, you know, with Bourneville and all the work that that they did hundreds of years ago. Um, But what we didn't imagine was that Kraft was going to come along, and it was going to swallow Cadbury's whole. So that was, um, that was a bit of a shock to the system. But the craft split, and we sit under a division called Mondelez, and they're amazing. People are very cynical about big business, and they think that big business wants to crush small business. They think that big business wants to change the values of a business, a small business. Actually... The reason big businesses acquire small businesses is usually because they've managed to do something that that big organisation hasn't. And what we've seen is that our values have rippled up through Mondelez and they now have a $400 million programme in West Africa called Coco Life, which works on the ground with about 13 different charities. It's involved with women's empowerment, so you can't be part of it unless women have control of the money. uh, It puts in schools, all in consultation with... The, the, the farmers and their families not not kind of independently whatever they need most um, that's where the money goes it's a story that reminds me a little of uh, Richard Reed when he sold yeah. Innocent um, to Coca-Cola he used his business to create change in such a Goliath company they kept the percentages going to charity they kept the initiative um, they just amplified them yeah. it shows you though how small can make a big difference in big. But after you've um, gone on to build many more businesses, write many more successful books, I can tell you've now um, not slowing down. Retiring doesn't feel like not something... Not allowed to mention the R word in our No house. R, yes. Retiring should retire. Um, tell me what you think makes a good business idea because you've now gone on to establish more businesses. What makes one stand up against another? For me, it's got to be something that I can't find but now when I have ideas I try and give them away 
<laughs> I don't want to do them. So with the Perfume Society, I was doing a, a, a perfume article. And I was doing a story for You magazine, putting out per- 10 perfumes. We had 10 readers coming. We had um, brought over someone from France to give a little talk about perfume. And as I was putting the perfumes out, I went, you know, it's so weird there's no perfume society. And I got shivers down my spine, which is always a very good sign, actually. And I Googled, got on my iPad and Googled, and the fourth entry that came up was Steak Appreciation Society. And that's when you realise that there's a gap in the market. And I went to my domain name provider and Scent Society, Perfume Society, Fragrance Society, all sitting there. So it's amazing to me that in this day and age, when you think everything's been done, there are still, you know, real opportunities there. really are. There really are. And as you said, those shivers... The shivers are a good the sign. The shivers are a good sign. That's that business tip that we're giving you tonight. <laughs> Shiver. But tell me, after 30 years now in business, what would you say is a key piece of advice that you've stuck to yourself or that you give to others? Oh, that's really hard, Holly. It's been so easy up till this point. So, well, you um, know what I mean? But there's something that you just feel... I think you talk about your compass. You yes. talk about your compass. You talk about your gut. And I think that that is the key, which is that even when your head is telling you one thing, if you can listen to that, if you can act on instinct and insight, it's incredibly powerful. I mean, they now think that our our stomach is another brain. Um, And actually, I think it's probably the the better brain. Um, So... The only times I ever make a mistake with anything are when I try and rationalise rather than listening to that voice from inside. I could talk to you all night and I hope... Oh, gosh, yes, I'm, I'm so looking oh, you forward know what to... you we haven't done? Oh, we, haven't, no, we haven't told you guys that there's going to be a Q&A and you get to... Um, yes, Joe's bought chocolate. Ten bars of chocolate. Here we go. But before we do that, I always use the analogy that running your own business is this crazy roller coaster that we all have jumped on and we s- sort of love, don't we? Can you tell us um, what you would say your biggest low on this journey has been? Oh, yes. Um, We had, thank you, Luke Johnson, we had a patisserie Valerie moment where there was a fraud against us and a £400,000 black hole emerged in our finances. And it was not a pretty story. It was somebody internal who'd, under cover of darkness, siphoned some money off. And we got through it because Craig managed to license his peanut butter business to his peanut butter manufacturer for exactly the right amount of money to fill the black hole. Um, But I've since discovered that it's incredibly common. Only people don't talk about it because they're ashamed. They think it was something that they did wrong. Um, And that was definitely the low point. I can only imagine. And conversely, when the wind's blowing in your hair... You're eating that bar of chocolate or the third. Well, I think, okay, so the most surreal... The high. (laughs) The high. So there I am, standing, waiting for the Queen. Um, As you do, (laughs) I was at a a Buckingham Palace reception for Women of Achievement. And for some reason, I was in the first room with Sharon Osbourne, Kath Kidston, (laughs) the head of the HSBC... And the woman who'd supplied all the smoked salmon for the Queen's Jubilee cruise around the Western Isles. A very odd group. And 
just before the Queen came in, Sharon Osborne looked at my badge and said, green, it said green and blacks. And she came over and she said, oh my God, she said, I was at my fridge at, at three o'clock this morning. I ate an entire um, container of green and blacks chocolate ice cream. And the Queen is coming through the door. <laughs> and I, I just literally, it was, it was completely surreal. Um, so yeah, that was, that was definitely... <laughs> That was a high. It was definitely a high. A high. You could make it up, could you? And there I was with Kath Kidston, whose windows I'd licked. (laughs) And tell me, someone that you think I could interview on this podcast that's inspired you. I thought of three. Can I? Yes. Yeah. So, my best friend, it's not because she's my best friend, um, Henrietta Lovell runs the Rare Tea Company. And she um, travels the world looking for rare teas. She partners with all of the world's leading restaurants, supplies their teas, etc. She's had huge uh, health challenges. She's had breast cancer twice. And um, she is a a real force of nature. Um, Jenny Costa, who is the founder of Ruby's in the Rubble, who very cleverly have yes. found a way of taking, you know, waste vegetables and turning them into delicious food. And uh, the third one is Kiki K, without whose stationery I wouldn't be able to get through the day, basically. Um, but she's a real entrepreneur. Oh, fantastic recommendations. Thank you, Joe. Um, it has been just a wonderful moment. And I just, yeah, as I said, I was saying out back out front, you know, Gosh, I, I, I think I love you. Is that too soon to say? <laughs> but I'm going, all from Instagram, really. All from Instagram. So I'm going to hand over now. Um, I don't know about this part. You've written a letter to your younger self. I have. But I just want to thank you, and from behalf of us all, for sharing a little part of your soul with us thank tonight. Thank you for having me. It is honestly a real thrill. Um, what I, I'm just going to throw a compliment at you, which is that I listen to a lot of podcasts and a lot of them I wish I hadn't bothered. But you're, you should have a telly show. You're such a good oh, well, interviewer. thank you very much. You really are. Oh, you gosh. draw things out I of love people. love her even more. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you. Actually, I thought last night of what it should be called, but I'll just tell you that off, off stage. <laughs> Over to you. Dear 15-year-old Joe, don't buy into the things they're saying about you that you're never going to amount to anything in this world. That you really need to pay attention and learn your Latin rather than tapping out Morse code on the ancient school radiators with your metal ruler during Latin lessons. (laughs) Although you'll be surprised one day at how the snippets you do remember are useful when you're exploring France and Italy, which you'll be pleased to hear you're going to do a lot of. Don't believe them when they tell you you'd better knuckle down and learn algebra and logarithms too, and those other bits of math that your teacher tells you you've got to study. Because you're absolutely right to have that stand-up argument with Miss Bolton and to say to her, if you can tell me when I am ever going to use a logarithm, I will learn them. Because you never will need them. And one day, when logarithms sort of become algorithms, you'll be able to pay a nerd to make them work brilliantly for you. (laughs) Stop worrying that you're never going to have any friends. Because for some reason, you find all your schoolmates too boring to hang out with. Because mostly, they are. 
Just be patient, because in a few years' time, you're going to find that you meet and even make friends with writers and artists, entrepreneurs and shopkeepers, fashion designers and actors, and creative and interesting people of all kinds, rather than the brain box what's you've been studying beside, or more often not studying beside, for 11 long years. This is the bit we've already been through, but don't listen to your mum when she tells you you're wasting your money on glossy copies of Vogue and Queen magazine, which she won't let you stick pages from on your walls in these pre-blue tack days, because you're absolutely right, they are your window on a more interesting world. And one day you will learn that papering the inside of your wardrobe with pictures of places you want to go and people you want to meet is actually called making a vision board and is indeed a form of creative visualisation that somehow magically is a stepping stone to a more interesting life than the suburbs of South London seem to have in store for you. And amazingly, you will actually meet some of those people and stay in those places and pinch yourself about it for decades to come. And all those years, all those hours reading and digesting magazines will pay off in a different way in a ridiculously short eight years' time when, astonishingly, you'll be editing a magazine yourself, able to understand exactly what readers want because you are a magazine reader first and foremost. And that's a gift because all the businesses you'll go on to found will be based around putting yourself in your customers' shoes, spotting gaps in the market and realising that if you need something and it's not out there, Probably lots of other people feel the same way. Don't pay attention to the people who tell you you're lazy either. You're not. You just haven't found something that engages you. Because when you do, you will work harder than you ever thought possible. You will work 18-hour days setting up and running green and blacks. Yes, one day you will have a chocolate company. You will have moved on from Kit Kats and Penguin Biscuits and Bourne Bill, and there'll be no looking back. For years, you will juggle running this business with being a magazine writer because every penny is tied up in chocolate and there's nothing left to pay you. So you can get to your desk at 7am to write articles so you can pay a mortgage and have shoe money, very important shoe money, (laughs) and then turn your attention to running your business. And later, you will do it all again when you set up Judge's Bakery, even though you've sold your first business and could really relax. You will work 363 days out of 365 for two years and your low point will be waking yourself up snoring at your own dinner party because you're so knackered (laughs) and again and again you will happily roll up your sleeves to work hard on something you're really passionate about so not wanting to read Cranford isn't a sign that you're lazy Joe Actually, you'll try reading it again later, wondering whether you'd maybe been wrong about it, and will fling it across the room, declaring, I still hate this book. You know that hunch you've got that it isn't you? It's them? You're going to find out that you're so, so right, and it's going to be the most incredible adventure. Oh, Joe, thank you so much. Brilliant, absolutely brilliant. Um, thank you very much, Joe. Thank you. Thank, thank you, you so, so much. much. 
before you go, here's a little more about Backer Business. Last year, NatWest's CEO, Alison Rose, wrote the Rose Review and discovered that if women launched and scaled businesses at the same rate as men, it would represent an untapped £250 billion opportunity for the UK economy. Isn't that unbelievable? So they created Backer Business, managed by Crowdfunder. This programme will match fund up to a million pounds a year, creating hundreds of successful applicants when they crowdfund through Backer Business. To find out more information, search NatWest Backer Business. And if you've enjoyed this conversation, if it has helped you along your own journey or inspired you, would you mind rating and reviewing this episode and podcast? Your support means the world and it really does spread the word and will help inspire even more people to build a life they love. Bow your head and let your eyelids close on down Where we're going you won't need to bring your frown You will find that all the things that I have said Will come to when you are lying